Hi, I'm Rick Samprin. In for Bill Kelly, in today's podcast, Ford Motor Company confirms that 185 people will be laid off at the company's Oakville assembly plant. We chat with Unifor President Jerry Diaz. Today marks one year since a gunman walked along Danforth Avenue in Toronto, randomly shooting at people who were enjoying a summer night in Greektown. And CBC's The Fifth Estate proposing to launch a new series that would feature convicted killer Paul Bernardo. Enjoy the podcast. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ford Motor Company on Friday confirming that 185 people will be laid off at the company's Oakville assembly plant. In a statement to Global News, the company spokesperson said, The layoffs will begin in September. We have a long-standing practice of matching production with consumer demand. As a result, we're making changes to the operating pattern. The statement goes on to say, we are changing from tag relief to mass relief and final assembly, which means the line will now stop during breaks. We're also eliminating one shift in paint, bringing that area of the plant to two shifts. According to Ford's website, about 4,600 people are employed at the Oakville plant, which first opened in 1953, and it currently produces the Ford Edge and the Flex, as well as the Lincoln MKX and MKT. Now, the cuts come as the Canadian auto market has seen 16 months of consecutive sales declines, and the industry contends with a sharp drop in sales in China and slowing sales in the U.S., so let's bring in our first guest. Jerry Diaz is the president of Unifor, the largest private sector union in Canada with more than 300,000 members, and he joins us now. Good morning, Mr. Diaz. How are you today? Good. Uh, if the industry had some good news for me for once, I'd be having a great morning. Yeah, I can understand. What's your reaction to Ford's latest announcement? No, I'm I'm disappointed for sure. I mean, we knew that the Ford Flex and the Lincoln MKT uh, were low volume. We knew that they were coming to the end of their production cycle, uh, but we still were hoping, of course, that the, the the sales of the Edge would be able to compensate for the job loss. And as uh, as we're talking right now, we haven't found the solution to those 185 families that are going to be affected in September. So we're working with Ford to try to find a solution. Ford announced last month that it was cutting 12,000 jobs in Europe by the end of next year. Uh, back in May, it was, uh, said it was going to trim 7,000 white-collar jobs. What's going on with Ford? Yep. Well, the same thing that's going on with everybody else. Uh, there's no question the uh, we we are past our peak period in sales. Uh, like you said, there's been 16 months of re- uh, reduced sales uh, in in the North American market. It's the uh, same trend as going through Europe and Asia. So we're definitely seeing a decline in sales, and people are are, are frankly laying off, um, consistent with the production requirements. So it's not just Ford, it's General Motors, it's Chrysler, it's all of them. But if you take a look at the Canadian auto industry, what one can argue we're being disappropriately hit. Um, I take a look at the elimination of the third shifter at the Windsor Assembly Plant that builds minivans. That's 1,700 jobs. Last week, NEMAC announced the closure of their of their plant in Windsor, which is over 200 jobs, and that was a former Ford uh, facilities. Now, of course, the announcement uh, with Ford Notebook, of course, uh, in November of last year, the announce, announcement by General Motors of the closing of the Oshawa plant. So the Canadian auto industry right now is going through some major difficulty. And, and ultimately, we've been, we've been raising the lack of unreal auto strategy here in this country for decades and trying to get governments to play a leadership role is like pulling teeth. 
I want to chat about that angle, but you mentioned that Canada, and in specific here in Ontario, uh, the manufacturing hub of the nation, is being disproportionately uh, hit. Why is that? Does it come to come down to higher labor costs? No, as a matter of fact, uh, the price of building a car in Canada is a heck of a lot cheaper than it is in the United States. As a matter of fact, it probably costs between 17 and $20 American an hour more to build a car in the United States. Uh, so there's a lot of different factors. Um, GM, the whole closure with Oshawa, I will argue they had planned that for years. Um, also, you've got the Trump factor happening here in the United States. I think GM was within their mind was wondering how they can close four plants uh, in the United States and not touch uh, Canada. But what's really frustrating is their strategy, like so many of the other automakers, is about increasing their footprint significantly in Mexico, where, frankly, they exploit their own employees. Uh, employees uh, in the auto industry in Mexico make between 2 and $4 an hour. Um, so it's straight. It's about straight greed. It's about exploitation. And, and frankly, workers in Canada and the United States are taking the hit. We're chatting with uh, Unifor President Jerry Diaz here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill this week. Unifor Local 707 President Dave Thomas said in a message to members last week that more reductions could be coming in January. Is Friday's announcement a precursor to more job cuts coming down the line? Well, it's hard to predict, uh, but clearly um, they're talking about, like right now they made an announcement that they're going to move the paint shop to a two-shift operation. Um, They're talking about moving the body shop to a two-shift operation in the beginning of uh, 2020. And so that may very well lead to some job cuts. But like I said, so much is going to be tied into sales. How many? Right now we build about 170,000 Ford Edges a year. Um, A slight increase in that uh, would certainly make us huge difference as it relates to the families are going to be negatively impacted. But it's not inconceivable to see more layoffs in 2020, that's for sure. Aside from the Ford announcement, you mentioned the GM plant in Oshawa that's being revamped to employ about 300 people instead of 2,600 by the end of this year. The provincial government uh, just uh, saying that they've written off $445 million as uncollectible debt from Chrysler uh, following the bailout in 2009. Is the auto industry in trouble or is it just morphing? Well, I don't think it's in trouble. I mean, we're still, even though we're we're past our peak period as it relates to the sales, they're still selling 18-plus million vehicles a year in the North American market, so it's still strong. It's incredibly strong, but what we're dealing with now is, is decades of decisions on investment. Um, the, the major players, and I'm not just talking the Detroit 3, I'm talking uh, European automakers, Everybody made major decisions to invest in Mexico. And, you know, as the life cycle of the current vehicles that we build in North America, um, you know, come to the end of their cycle, you know, the investments that they made in Mexico, they continue to ramp up, like, their latest business decisions, their latest models, like, where did GM launch the Chevy Blazer? In Mexico. And that's the only new vehicle that they've really come up with in the last few years. So it's all a question of a long-term strategic vision and it's playing out before us today. So people are going to have to get pretty active um, if, in fact, we expect to maintain our industry. The auto industry in Canada is the number one export industry. It's over $80 billion a year. It's, it's, it's more important as it relates to, uh, to uh, you know, export money uh, than the oil and energy sector, than the forestry sector. So this is a big deal, and the province of Ontario is getting hammered. And once again, people are going to have to wake up and 
and start to figure out what in the heck they're going to do about this. Jerry Diaz is our uh, opening guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill. Mr. Diaz is the president of Unifor, the largest private sector union in this country. Now, automakers have said uh, recent job cuts and assembly plant modifications are being made as the industry switches to more electric vehicles, more autonomous vehicles. Is is the market or is the demand for those types of vehicles big enough right now to make these changes, or are they jumping the gun uh, so they're ready for when these changes become more popular? Look, to me, that's the ultimate diversion, is the argument about autonomous and hybrid vehicles. If you listen to the auto companies, they'll, they predict that the North American market might be 5% hybrid electric vehicles by 2025, 5%. So that's not even one assembly plant um, running a three-shift operation. So, you know, if we're going to follow the global trend, which we should, and start to look for far more fuel-efficient electric vehicle, I, I understand all that. But they can do that here in Canada. They can do it in the United States. But they're making those major investments in Mexico. So um, but that, you know, is the longer-term vision, but that's not today's reality that we're dealing with. So to me, it's more of a cop-out than anything else. Um, look, whether it's an autonomous self-driving vehicle, it's still, you know, it's still a vehicle with four wheels. <laughs> Somebody's going to be in the car. So it's just a question of decisions of where they're making the assembling because it's the same basic car. It just has different technology as it relates uh, to the internal computers as to, as, to, as to how it's propelled. So I think it's more of a diversion, uh, you know, because they still have to build them. The question is where. You, you mentioned uh, government earlier on in our discussion. The public's appetite for governments to help automakers is probably quite small right now, considering the news of you know the uncollectible debt from Chrysler uh, regarding the bailout. Should governments lend a helping hand to these companies or, or their workers? What, what part does government have to play in this equation? Well, it's huge. There's still a half a million jobs in Ontario tied into direct and indirect jobs tied into the auto industry. It's the number one employer as it relates to different industries. So the question that you have to ask, as a nation, are we better off minus 500,000 jobs? Um, The tax base for auto workers is huge. If you take a look at the amount of taxes that the companies pay, but more importantly, the amount of taxes that come out of the pockets of the workers, they build roads, bridges, schools, hospitals. So you can't be a better, you can't be better off as a nation or as a society without the tax base uh, that is created by these incredible jobs. So nobody can argue with me that somehow just let, you know, let the market make its own decisions. And ultimately, that's just the way the ball bounces. Countries are fighting to get have jobs in the auto industry. Why? Because of the incredible payback. For every dollar they contribute to the auto industry, they get 10 back fairly quickly, just in straight taxes. So ultimately, as a nation, you have to decide what type of middle-class jobs you want. And if you want middle-class jobs and you want a strong society and you want strong you know, income for infrastructure spending, well, then the government has to be active in creating these jobs. They just don't fall out of the sky. Uh, th- there's no question that vehicles that are made today are much more reliable, much better, much more longer lasting than those in the past. Is that part of the problem? Is the auto industry killing itself because these vehicles are so reliable and that's why we're seeing these sales slumps? Well, I think people are holding on to their cars longer for sure, but but you know it, it all it's all tied into the economy. It's all tied into jobs, it's all tied into purchasing power. 
Um, I don't think it's the cost of the vehicles at all. I just think it's about political uncertainty. And I think it's about, you know, people second-guessing their jobs. How long will they be in their jobs as a transient? Take a look in Canada. We create four part-time, non-standard jobs for every one full-time job. So things have changed significantly over the last few decades. So people who are working part-time jobs, two, three part-time jobs, aren't thinking about when they're going to buy their next brand-new vehicle. They're, they're, they're wondering about how they're going to be able uh, to house and food their kids. So there's different societal pressures going on that I will argue are having an impact. Another one is, you know, better public transit systems as well. I mean, that, that has an impact too. Absolutely, it does. Um, as more people migrate, uh, you're heading into, you know, the downtown core. Um, I live in downtown Toronto. Uh, there's a lot of people there that, frankly, have no vehicles at all. Why? Because it's easier to use public transportation. So I think we're seeing some of that as well. But ultimately, I think it's cyclical. The, the auto industry is just like other major manufacturing, and I think we're starting to go down the inevitable dip. We've been at peak production periods for the better part of 10 years. Uh, they usually go in five-year cycles, but we're you know, well into a successful run. So, you know, what goes up must come down, and I think we're starting to see that now. Jerry, really appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of the week. Pleasure is always mine. Have a good day. You too, Jerry Diaz, president of Unifor, the largest private sector union in Canada. Uh, Responding to the latest announcement from uh, Ford Motor Company, confirming that 185 people will be laid off at the Oakville assembly plant. And, well, you know, job cuts in the auto industry, uh, there's nothing new here. Now, this is just one in a long line of announcements over the past number of months and years, really, that we're seeing the auto industry workforce, especially at assembly plants, uh, dwindling. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple more tidbits of info on uh, Ford Motor Company's decision to uh, lay off 185 workers from the Oakville assembly plant uh, beginning in September. A spokesman for Ontario Economic Development Minister Vic Fideli said the provincial government is, quote, disappointed to hear about the layoff notices and is pledging to offer assistance. Minister of Training Colleges and Universities has been in contact with Ford, offering support to affected workers. Ford informed the ministry they've made arrangements to provide support and do not require any additional help from Employment Ontario. I should note that uh, Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath is uh, blaming the layoffs on the provincial government's inaction. Quote, Ontario needs an effective auto strategy now to make sure that this industry grows and thrives into the future. You Democrats have been pushing for an auto strategy for a long time because being the auto manufacturing hub of the future won't happen by accident. That from Andrea Horvath. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today marks one year since a gunman walked along Danforth Avenue in Toronto, randomly shooting at people who were enjoying a summer night out in Greektown. The incident left two people dead, 18-year-old Reese Fallon and 10-year-old Juliana Kozis. Thirteen others were injured. The community will gather tonight at sunset to remember the victims after a solemn ceremony was held yesterday at a nearby park where the community gathered for a moment of silence. Church bells will ring out tonight. The community will hold a moment of silence as well. Uh, Last month, you'll recall that investigators released their findings into the shooting and determined that while the shooter had a long history of mental health issues, his motive 
remains unclear. Let's bring in our first guest on this topic. Her name is Brianna Carnegie from Global News Radio, a producer, uh, reporter extraordinaire, and joins us now on uh, The Bill Kelly Show. Brianna, good morning. Good morning. What is planned for tonight? What can we expect to see in here? You teed it up perfectly. It's going to be really a ceremony tonight to remember the victims that were killed one year ago today. Um, that's a 10-year-old Juliana Kosas, an 18-year-old Reese Fallon. There was also 13 people injured that night. Just a summer night, as you were explaining, they were out enjoying dinner. They were out having ice cream, walking along the Danforth, enjoying the Greektown community when those shots rang out. So tonight we'll have this sunset ceremony. It begins at 8.51. It's at Alexander the Great Parkhead in Toronto, and uh, that's where the shooting began last year. So I think a lot of people returning to the scene where their their family members, their friends, their loved ones, it will be a hard moment, but they'll gather together to mourn and remember them. We're going to hear the names of the victims be read aloud. Uh, church bells will be ringing as well. There'll be a moment of silence to remember everyone. And we're also told that a choir from the Danforth community will be singing. Is there any guesstimate on the size of the crowd tonight? Well, yesterday there was a ceremony as well, uh, and that took part at Withrow Park, which is another park in the area. And 200 people came out to that ceremony. So one year ago, I can imagine we'll see many of those same faces coming tonight as well, Um, perhaps some more from the community and and those who really just want to be part of this process to gather and mourn the victims. I watched uh, Global News reporter Karen uh, Lieberman's report on yesterday's ceremony, and it, it was quite touching. The speeches, uh, the choir, as you mentioned, uh, it was it was done very, very well. It was done well. They had lots of flowers that were laid out as well, so you really saw how many people were coming out and, and showing their support. Um, I know off the top there, you played some of the clips from Quinn Fallon, who is Reese Fallon's sister, and... I think that was really what tugged at my heartstrings uh, listening to that ceremony yesterday because we have to remember this is her best friend. This is her sister, somebody that she hasn't seen for a year, somebody that she would turn to in moments like this where she would need support and she doesn't have her there. So uh, Karen Lieberman, as you mentioned, was there last night and and chatted with Quinn and uh, she was wearing these angel earrings and she described them to Karen as, Um, something that she turns to, these symbols that she turns to to try and get through this moment. And they were actually given to her by Juliana Kozis' family. So it's that that touching, just a touching moment there that she describes the support that she's had in her life for somebody who's no longer there. We're chatting with Global News producer, reporter, Brianna Carnegie here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill today. Uh, You mentioned uh, Quinn, uh, uh, Reese Fallon's sister. We've heard from a number of victims and their families really over the past year. Um, The common message is that they're still haunted by the attack, and that's certainly understandable. It's understandable, and it's not so much, uh, it, it is a lot about the physical injuries, but something that every person Global News has talked to has said that it's really the mental health that is the hardest part to recover from. Um, I know we've chatted a lot with Danielle Kane, and you you may have heard that name. She uh, was one of the people that was out dining that night, and when she heard what she thought was fireworks and then realized it was actually gunshots, she went running out into the street. She's described as a hero. She was trying to save people that were scattered along the street, and she was actually shot herself. One of the bullets went 
through her uh, and, and shattered her vertebrae. It left her paralyzed. So she describes this entire year as recovering from those physical injuries and learning how to live in a wheelchair. But she also talks about her battle with mental health and how to visit, how to remember that moment in her in her mind and how to try and get past it and, and to think about it so that she's no longer scared about it. So this is just one of the many victims that has to get by that. We've also heard from Ali Demirkin, who was grazed by a bullet that night. He actually witnessed Reese Fallon shot and killed. So to have that memory in his mind, it, he has to get past that. And, and he says he still hears the shooters yelling from that night. So it, it's just, it's a traumatic experience and one that the community has to bounce back from. Brianna, how important is tonight's ceremony, not only for the victims and their families, but just for the community and in that part of the community? In that part of the community, for sure. I, I know Karen Lieberman is part of that community and, and she has spoken a lot about how this has affected her personally. But I'm, I'm not from that area and you hear people chatting about it all the time. And, and not only that one, but also the Young Street ban attack. That was truly a horrific year and, and we have to bounce back from it as a community and that includes coming together and trying to mourn and remember the victims and also move past it. So one of the other things that we've heard in this way is how can we prevent this from happening again? And that also includes better gun control laws. We heard from uh, Ken and Claire Price. Uh, They're the parents of Samantha Price, whose hip was shattered by a bullet. They chatted with us last week and, and really spoke about how can we move this conversation forward? How can we talk about better gun control laws to make sure that somebody who has mental health issues can't get their hands on a gun and have this happen again? And in terms of because there's going to be such a large crowd, I would imagine there tonight as there was yesterday, is security a concern? Is there a, a police presence we should be you know, uh, watching out for? I can certainly imagine that there will be police presence. Um, it's just one of those events where if the community is coming together, um, we've, they have, police are going to be there for sure. I, I can't imagine why they wouldn't be, but it's, uh, it's definitely changed the past year. Even walking around Toronto, you see certain barriers that have popped up where they weren't before. Uh, there's some around Union Station now, certainly around the Rogers Centre. There's uh, concrete blocks that would prevent perhaps a, a vehicle to go over it. There's uh, way more supports in place. And, and that's just on a day-to-day basis that we've seen. And large events, the, uh, for instance, the Raptors Championship Parade, there had to be a huge police presence that day. And I think these two tragic events that Toronto has gone through in the past year has played a role in that. Brianna, really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Brianna Carnegie, a Global News producer reporter, will be uh, there at uh, tonight's ceremony, uh, reflecting on yesterday's solemn ceremony just uh, nearby in a parkette off the Danforth, in which a couple of hundred people attended to mourn the victims from an attack that happened one year ago today. Two people dead, 13 others injured, many more impacted by what happened one year ago today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today marks one year since a gunman walked along Danforth Avenue in Toronto, randomly shooting at people who were enjoying a summer night in Greektown. Two dead, 
13 others injured. Tonight, there is going to be a uh, a vigil for the victims, of course their families, everyone who was impacted by uh, this senseless uh, gunfire. Uh, joining us now to talk about the, more or less the impact on the community, but what Toronto police have been doing over the last 12 months is crime specialist Ross McLean. Good morning, Ross. This is obviously a tough day for the victims, uh, their families and friends, as well as the residents and business owners on the Danforth too. There was a, a number of people, a number of businesses, a number of community members who were impacted by this incident. Uh, yeah, and we we still don't know what it is. That's why we're calling it an incident and uh, senseless and with no understanding a year later uh, with the investigation. I mean, I, just to remind you, I was down at the scene of that within five minutes of the shooting happening because I live not far from there. And uh, you have all these people a year later, and we're focusing on uh, victims and sorrow, but we have no answers as to why after a year of investigation. Is that normal for a case like this, or, you know, a year later, should there be some closure for these victims? There's no closure from the police report. Uh, There's no closure from the investigation. There's no closure from uh, anything that's been said, and I think that that, that's a problem that we need to look at here as to uh, why this happened, what happened, what information has been left out, what has not been told, and uh, what are we dealing with here? Uh, I don't think it's, it's it's been looked after at all well from the public's point of view. And why do you say that? What what are some of the things that police have done incorrectly or, or should have done? Well, what we're seeing is an absence of information, really. The, the Danforth report, that is called a report that came out a year after it, is essentially just a listing of, uh, of information that they collected with no analysis, uh, no follow-up as to why on some of the key issues. In fact, uh, I think there's just one sentence in the report that mentions that, oh, uh, we're not sure about his travel and where he went, when apparently he had traveled to Pakistan with his father for a period of time just before this. And and this, this young man, uh, just in general, if you look at the profiles of people who commit terror acts, and as far as I'm, I'm concerned, this, this certainly le- uh, leaned itself more to being a terror act than anything else. He completely meets, meets the profile of what the FBI would put out for someone doing it. But we're left to believe somehow um, it's a mental health issue, uh, is what is tr- sort of laid out within the report. So... Uh, I'm not convinced that we've had the proper follow-up on it. I think that people who are concerned about that need to take that into consideration. So do you think Toronto police are reluctant to use terror or terrorism in this case? Well, this is a question people can ask themselves. I mean, we had from the start uh, a claim within hours of this happening that it wasn't a terror incident, really, that it was no national security issues. Yet it took a year for the information to come out. Uh, and they're not, uh, they have not investigated at all, as far as I can tell, in their public reporting uh, as, as to what all the tie-ins in this. I mean, I could probably go on if I wanted to for 15 minutes to, to list all the information that requires further investigation that isn't being done. You know, and the question of whether, you know, we as a country uh, have currently lasted a little while been acting soft on terrorism or, or not giving it proper heed, I think, is a question that has been raised. I mean, I will say this. I did ask uh, very recently a very senior person within the government about whether or not they're soft on terrorism, and they believe that they're not. 
they believe that they're not. That's the government's position. But uh, I'll leave it to the people who are going to be the voters, I think, to figure that out if we're going to be able to deal with this. Our guest is uh, Ross McLean, crime specialist, a former Toronto police officer as well here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. Uh, one year later, is is the Danforth shooting still classified as an active investigation in your regard, or or has it become a cold case? Or when does it become a cold case? Or, or does it even ever become a cold case because we know what happened? Well, the investigators will say that they're open to information and it's still open and they're still looking at it, that they haven't closed it. However, as I said, there's been no conclusions brought to what I think are some pretty uh, pretty interesting circumstances with this young man. Number one being, where was the gun acquired? Where was the ability to shoot the gun acquired? Uh, where did he learn how to do that? How did he practice this? I would just tell you that in general, in general, I mean, uh, people for common sense can look. When you see a great movie about a big bank heist or a, or a great killer that's going out somewhere to do something, you always see where there's counter surveillance, there's practice, they rehearse things, they figure out what they're going to do so that they can do it well. Uh, I'd like to know where he acquired the weapon, where he acquired the magazines, the extensive magazines, where he fired all the shots, where he learned how to do that, where he had the cool and calmness to fire at a marked police car with two police officers when they came up, and how he managed to, when he decided to off himself at the end, put the gun in just the right place with one pull of the trigger and kill himself. Now, I'm not trying to be graphic for the sake of being graphic. These are things that just don't happen to someone who decides one day to wake up and go cause some problems somewhere. It's not consistent with that. It's more consistent with someone who has been uh, radicalized. Uh, that that was his behavior. That's all I'm saying. It meets the profile very, very well, but that's not really addressed in the report. I know there's been some anecdotal information. I'm not sure police ever confirmed that the gun was apparently stolen from Saskatchewan and brought over here, or, or however it, it it managed to migrate itself onto or into the hands of this individual. Um, but but in saying that, do you get the feeling, because I get the feeling that someone is hiding something. Someone knows something, and that information has not been released to the public. Well, that, I think it's more an omission uh, by the police and putting forward certain information. Anybody can read the report. The report's up online, but when you read it, 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 it draws no conclusions. It doesn't go into depth. It makes no uh, what I would call investigative analysis of, of where things lead and what the result is. It's, it's laid out. When I first read it, I gave it my first cursory read. It looked to me like something that a defense, uh, a defense lawyer would put up at the, at the sentencing for someone to say, here's, here's what we know about the person. It certainly wasn't an investigation into a prosecution. It was just a summary of facts listed in a way that was very benign. Without, without tying together what I think are the obvious threats. Is the Danforth much safer today, or, or are people kind of, you know, checking over their shoulders? Well, people have to ask themselves about how safe uh, the country necessarily is, if this, was in, if this was indeed something that had ties to this. I mean, don't forget, ISIS claimed this, uh, this attack. The police say, oh, there's no reason to believe ISIS. They claimed it as their attack of the year. Uh, just shortly before that, I mean, two days before he went on this rampage, there was uh, also the report of gunfire right outside in, in the block where he lived, where a gun was shot off, but no one was found when they went there. Uh, there's just all sorts of unanswered questions to this. And, and I, I think that until you solve the problem, uh, it's great that we have the sorrow, but I've seen no action come out of this that, that shows that we're taking 
uh, greater care uh, on dealing with these incidents like this. And the biggest question remains, at least for the victims and their families, why? Why did this happen? Uh, why did this come about? Why uh, the, the particular individuals who were targeted? And uh, they'll never know. And that's probably the saddest part in this whole equation. Well, perhaps they will know at some point. Perhaps they will know. But Uh, I mean, I really think that people need to take this into consideration when they're figuring out how we deal with terror, how we deal with weapons like this, how we deal with these sort of actions. And uh, the best place to do that, I think, is at the ballot box at this time, because you can't do it uh, with with relying and waiting for the the government to report or the police to report. We don't seem to have the answers. Uh, And it's a real it's terrible. And I'm very sorrowful for the for the parents and the survivors uh, of this that we don't have the. conclusive information we need, I think, to be able to close the book on it. Well said. Rosh, appreciate the time today. Thank you, Rick. Ross McLean, a crime specialist, former Toronto police officer, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show again one year ago today. The violence on Danforth Avenue claimed the lives of two people, 13 others injured, many more impacted by the senseless act carried out one year ago today. The community tonight will gather at sunset to remember the victims. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The CBC's The Fifth Estate is proposing to launch a new series that would feature convicted killer Paul Bernardo. Back on Wednesday, the Globe and Mail reported the TV news magazine was considering airing a series of programs about Paul Bernardo and that the idea had prompted objections from CBC News staff. Bernardo was convicted of torturing and murdering Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey in 1995 and was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for at least 25 years. You can imagine the community of St. Catharines in particular not too happy about this, and that's why I bring in my next guest, uh, CHML Morning News anchor Shona Thompson. This is your neck of the woods. Uh, the poop is at the fan. Oh, very much so. And I would think that people in Burlington are pretty upset about this as well. Very much so. Given that uh, one of the other victims, Leslie Mahaffey, was from Burlington. People in St. Catharines are sick and tired of media outlets trying to either grab ratings or sell newspapers quickly mm-hmm. by splashing Bernardo's face across the screen or across you know, the front page. Right, and re-victimizing the victims. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the the, uh, the family of uh, Kristen French, um, they have had to go through so much and then so much more. Yeah. And again, and any time that Bernardo goes up for a parole hearing, it all happens again. And it's not that you would ever fully put this behind you. How could you? But they're sick and tired of, of I mean, if there was anything new about the situation, you could say maybe, but there isn't. And that was my initial reaction, too, when I heard that this could be a possibility. And again, it's just in the proposal phase. Um, But I'm thinking, is is there anything new other than, you know, his application for parole a a few months ago? I mean, there, there aren't any new details to emerge from this. No, I mean, you know, there were some new developments. Uh, with regard to um, uh, his wife, his former wife, right. um, that, you know, she was spotted in Montreal and she's moved back from uh, the Caribbean yeah. to resume a life here in Canada. Um, but other than that, I mean, what really can we learn from this? I mean, there were uh, deficiencies in some of the investigation that initially happened. If they had caught him as the Scarborough rapist, then St. Catharines wouldn't have been victimized and the French families would probably be enjoying their grandchildren right mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I'm sure that that's a test case for a police college, but really it doesn't have to be revisited in the public eye again. I mean, these two terrorized 
not just one, but three communities. Scarborough with Paul Bernardo and the rapes that uh, happened initially. And then, of course, Burlington and St. Catharines. Can you imagine what the families are going through? As you mentioned, again, they're having to go through this whole thing again. All over again. To the point, I understand that you tried to get a hold of their lawyer. And uh, and they don't want any more yeah. media attention. It has all been said and done. Yeah. And it needs to be put to rest. And as you can imagine, Tim Danson can't speak to this because it's not official yet. It's just in the, you know, what if stage. But I would imagine if this does go ahead, the family and, and, and Mr. Danson's going to have a response. As we know, true crime stories, whether it's on TV or radio or podcasts, are very popular. But you think there's an appetite for this story to be told for even people who don't know about what happened. They might know the name mm-hmm. and the victim's names, but they don't know the intricacies of what happened in the court cases and obviously in the House. Well, yes and no. I think in other markets, perhaps outside of Ontario, there may be some passing interest. Yeah. But you know what? You can Google. And there are Wikipedia pages. There are past Fifth Estate shows that have been done True. on this. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, some good investigative journalism at the time it was happening. Right. But to have to revisit this now, I'm just like, if there is anything new, I'd be amazed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't see anything. I mean, anything. this happened 27 yeah. years ago. Uh, we're going to thank you for your time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, let, let's pray for the families that they don't have to, you know, encounter this, uh, you know, proposed TV series. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've been discussing the CBC's The Fifth Estate, proposing, at least at this point, to launch a new crime series that would feature convicted killer Paul Bernardo. CBC spokesperson says the Fifth Estate is considering looking at a sex crimes against women uh, series and that Bernardo's crimes would be a part of that larger story. Is there an appetite for this? As you heard from CHML Morning News anchor Shona Thompson, we've gone through this before. We've We've experienced the trial. We've heard from the victims' families. We know what happened. We know the story. There's nothing new. So why rehash one of the most heinous crimes in Canadian history? Well, let's ask our next guest. He's the Liberal MP for St. Catharines, and his name is Chris Biddle, and he joins us now. Mr. Biddle, good morning. How are you doing? Uh, Good. Yourself? Very good, thank you. What was your reaction when you heard about this proposed series that the CBC's The Fifth Estate is contemplating at this point? Well, like many St. Catharines residents, I was shocked. This is something our community went through almost 30 years ago. And as a, I was in grade school at the time, and I remember the terror uh, in Niagara, um, the unknown, the fact that two two people were missing and the trauma that it caused that still is fresh in people's minds today. It's hard to believe that in a region of hundreds of thousands of people that uh, that trauma could continue for so long, but it does. And whenever, and I don't want to mention his name, but whenever that killer's name is mentioned, um, there's still that, uh, still that feeling so many years later. And it's appalling that the CBC and the way the Globe and Mail story was, was to boost sagging ratings for the fifth estate that they would try to find um, the most sensationalized case they could and without any care to what it would cause to the victims' families, um, the victims um, in Scarborough, 
um, and the communities involved. And that's shocking, especially coming from our pro- public broadcaster. It seems like uh, the, the victims are going to be re-victimized again. The, the, the victims' families are going to go through all this again, even though, obviously, you know, they're, they're not going to watch the program, but they know that people are going to be watching it or talking about it, and it's not something that should be on our TVs or tablets or whatnot. Absolutely, and this is something they went through three decades ago. There were movies made, there were documentaries done, There were important things to explore back then. Uh, Policing has changed substantially, especially in Ontario, because of the work that journalists did to tell that story. And that was important work that was done. And sometimes difficult stories have to be told. But it worries me that employees at the Fifth Estate, at CBC News, have come forward to the Globe and Mail anonymously because they are upset by this. That this is something that does not have... Um, any newsworthy benefit rather than trying to capitalize on the true crime phenomenon that we see in Netflix, that we see on network television. And it's solely for that. And if it doesn't have any tangible news benefits, what is the Fifth Estate doing? The Fifth Estate has such an incredible reputation for all the work they've done over the years. And to uh, rehash this story without care um, of the harm that it does is is appalling. You mentioned Netflix, and uh, you know they, they've done a number of true crime, uh, w- whether it's documentaries or rehashing with uh, you know Hollywood actors, and and that's I think the last thing that anyone wants to see in this regard. Absolutely, and I I, I can only speak for the residents in in St. Catharines, and what we're hearing uh, from the community is just a complete disappointment with with the CBC. Um, this isn't their this isn't their mandate. There's a reason they're publicly funded, um, and it's not to try to find the sensationalized story and capitalize on it. Um, any discussion in uh, in government in terms of uh, putting pressure on the CBC to to not pursue this? Um, well, I'm I'm going to use my voice. Um, there is a fine line because this the Fifth Estate is a division of CBC News, and there is an important barrier, even though the CBC is publicly funded. Elected officials should not be in control of the editorial decisions of CBC News. But I'm going to use my platform, and I'm going to use my voice um, and suggest that residents of Niagara, residents of Southern Ontario, let the CBC know that this isn't for them, and they don't want to see it, and they don't think that the CBC should be part of this. You mentioned earlier that the pain in the community is, you know, persists almost three decades later, uh, or more than three decades later. It, it seems to me that that pain is never going to go away. That 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 whatever it is, the stigma, the stain, uh, the the uh, the pain that followed uh, those crimes is, is always going to be there. Absolutely. I I remember as a kid just the the terror in my mother's eyes. And that's not something that goes away, that a uh, 10, 11, 12-year-old, I'm not not quite sure how old I was at the time, but around that age. But that's a lasting lasting image that I had, and that impacts someone for the rest of their life. And so that story is um, not unique to me. That's a story that I hear from residents across the country that were worried for their own kids because no one knew what was going on and it was a great unknown it wasn't a quick turnaround and arrest and this was a story that dominated the news for a long period of time and niagara was left really harmed by um, those two individuals and what they did 
Uh, and we have to remember Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, and uh, and this isn't honoring their memory. This is just using their memory to boost ratings and um, no no care for the harm, again, that it would cause those families or for the residents of Niagara. Chris, really appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Chris Biddle is the Liberal MP for St. Catharines, uh, shedding uh, his thoughts on uh, a proposal, at least at this point, from CBC's The Fifth Estate to launch a new series that would include convicted killer Paul Bernardo. It was a story that uh, first was um, uh, published on Wednesday in the Globe and Mail, and the CBC has at least confirmed that they're considering looking at a sex crimes against women uh, program or series or episode that would include Bernardo's crimes uh, being part of the larger story. Now, true crime stories, as I mentioned, are are nothing new. And, and if you have an opinion on this, we have a couple minutes to discuss this. You can call in with your thoughts on whether you would watch this particular program. Whether you're a fan of the CBC or the Fifth Estate, that, that's besides the point. Would you watch a true crime story featuring or including Paul Bernardo? Or is it a case of, you know, been there, done that? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You can send me an email with some of your thoughts as well. Rick at 900CHML.com or hop onto Twitter at Rick Zamprin or at AM900CHML. Do we really need to relive the atrocities that Paul Bernardo and Carl Homolka committed on TV or on your tablet or whether you watch on your phone, whatever the case is. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell phone. Now, I have watched true crime and heinous crimes, or at least reenactments or stories, and one of those being the Ted Bundy Tapes, popular show on Netflix. I think that was the one with Zac Efron. I mean, that was a a very interesting, because I didn't know everything about the case, a very interesting display on Ted Bundy's crimes. But this one with Paul Bernardo hits, well, not a little close to home, a lot close to home. Too close to home. So I get that there's an appetite for these true crime shows or features or movies. I mean, this is nothing new. But something on Bernardo, at least to me, I just can't stomach it. I don't think it should be a go. But what if Netflix did it? Because it's so separated from, well, Canada... Now, this is an American company that is focusing on trying to provide the biggest and best content for our consumption. What if Netflix said, you know what, we're going to do a series on Paul Bernardo, very similar to the Ted Bundy tapes series that they did, or Conversations with a Killer, that focused on Ted Bundy. Would you watch it? Or is Canada's public broadcaster trying to capitalize on Bernardo's, well, crimes and re-victimize the victims? To me, that's where I'm 
standing right now. Whether it's the CBC or Netflix or whatever, HBO hops on this. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Would you watch a true crime story, episode, series, movie, whatever the case is, on Paul Bernardo all these years later? Or would that not be on your wish list? You can send me a note as well, rick at 900chml.com. i got a couple of minutes to toss this around. Because there's nothing new in this story. I mean, we, we know all the facts. We know Bernardo is behind bars. We know he is a dangerous offender. We know he's probably never, ever, ever going to get out, and that's a great thing. But the appetite to relive this on the big screen or a small screen, I don't think is there. Uh, St. Catherine's Mayor Walter Sensek, we tried to get him on the program, but I guess he was unavailable. He issued a statement saying, I express my absolute opposition regarding a proposed CBC series about a serial rapist and murderer who left a deep scar on our entire community. While I respect the Fifth Estate and its investigative journalism, there's nothing to gain from producing a series about a heinous person. Senzik says he plans to chat with the president and CEO of the CBC, as well as the producers of the Fifth Estate. So we'll see where this goes. And again, a CBC spokesperson saying that the Fifth Estate is considering, at this point, looking at a sex crimes against women program that Bernardo would be a part of that larger story. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.